This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to Master the MRCPCH. In this podcast, we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, giving you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. You may be revising for an exam or just fancy brushing up on a need to know topic. I'm Emma, an anaesthetic registrar and the Digital Learning Fellow at GOSH. My guest today is the eminent Professor Stephen Marks, consultant paediatric nephrologist at Great Ormond Street Hospital and Professor of Paediatric Nephrology and Transplantation at University College London Great Ormond Street Institute of Child Health. He is talking to me about systemic lupus erythematosus and lupus nephritis, covering the clinical features etiology, investigations and management of this condition. This topic corresponds to the RCPCH theory exam syllabus under nephrourology and musculoskeletal diseases. We hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you so much, Professor Marks, for coming on the show today. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me. It gives me great pleasure to talk about one of my favourite subjects, both clinically and academically, looking after children with systemic lupus serothematosus and lupus nephritis. Can I start by asking, what would you like people to get out of this podcast? For me, I think it's the understanding of how children may present with SLE or systemic lupus erythematosus and about the differential diagnosis and how you work out their presentation, because obviously Many children do have delayed presentations, and especially that's become more apparent with COVID-19 without clinically reviewing patients as well. So really important lessons that we've all learned before, during and after the pandemic. I guess starting with talking about SLE, going back to the beginning and the basics, what is SLE and what do we know about what causes it? So systemic lupus erythematosus or SLE is a life-limiting, life-threatening condition that children and young adults can have that presents usually during adolescence, but we have seen children as young as two years of age. And of course, excluding neonatal lupus, which is due to antibody transfer across placenta from a mother who may be affected but unknown with anti-Rho and anti-LA antibodies. Like many conditions in medicine, we understand more every single year that it is an autoimmune phenomenon. We're learning more about the genetics of SLE as years go by, and there are inherited complement deficiencies. But we do view it as an autoimmune condition. And one way to kind of understand it is to think about type 1 insulin-dependent diabetes, where you potentially can have antibodies which attack the pancreas and prevent the release of insulin, so therefore requiring injections of insulin for those patients. We are obviously talking about lupus as being a multi-system disease, so in fact it can affect any organ in a child at any time, and that's one of the important reasons to make sure that children and young people are regularly followed up, both clinically and immunologically as well. And you said that Quite frequently, there's a delayed presentation of SLE in children. How do children with SLE typically present? Is there a typical presentation? 
Well, we've done lots of clinical work and research regarding this, and we're part of the UK GSLE consortium, which is a national consortium, as well as national and other international groups. And actually, if you look at many rheumatological conditions that happen in children or adults, lupus is probably the one which is much more similar. Symptoms can be from any of the organs, but actually, very often children may have just been a bit tired, lethargic, less energy levels, but may in fact be reviewed locally by primary and secondary care for concerns over infections because of having intermittent fevers. And it may be that the joint pain or joint manifestations don't become so evident or may in fact be thought to be down to growing pains, which of course are more common in adolescents. And very often there can be the situation where adults are diagnosed with systemic lupus erythematosus, but in fact they had symptoms and signs of lupus as a child. But what we know with children is that they generally present with more severe disease at the time of the diagnosis. And in fact, kidney disease may be apparent in up to about 80% of children. And that will sometimes include those that have very quick reversible acute kidney injury at the time of presentation. And if you're confronted with a child who's presenting with some of these more non-specific symptoms and signs, is there anything in particular you would ask about in the history or look for on examination that would increase your clinical suspicion? I think the important thing is when looking at children presenting with some of the symptoms that I mentioned above, is to get an overall history. So it's really important to go through every single system. And that's really important because actually some children may have very significant neurological manifestations. So they may present with cerebral lupus. I've seen children that have in the one end of the spectrum being catatonic, which of course is quite rare, but actually other children may have evidence of just headaches and new onset of headaches together with, for example, other symptoms because fever, joint pains, joint manifestations, abdominal pain can all lead you to think that there is a multi-system disease going on and considering systemic lupus erythematosus as part of the differential diagnosis. So I think it's really important to get a good history. It's really important to find out if anything in the past medical history could be relevant, obviously, drug history, because there are some drugs such as hydralazine, which can uh, give a drug-induced lupus. So the typical malar rash, which you can see the facial appearances, which basically is a facial rash, which can uh, have nasolabial sparing, may be evident in patients who have just had drugs. And actually, checking antihistone antibodies can be quite helpful in understanding the diagnosis in that particular group of patients. The other aspect of history, which is really important, of course, is checking that there's no autoimmune conditions in the child that's known, for example, thyroid disease. But of course, it's really important to get a good family history and to draw a family tree looking for other autoimmune conditions, such as type 1 insulin-dependent diabetes, thyroid disease, systemic lupus erythematosus, mixed connective tissue disorders as well, and family members may be very relevant.
After you've taken a good history, it's really important to have a full examination. And that means examining all systems, just like we did within the history. So including neurological examination, cardiorespiratory examination, abdominal, good joint examination as well, and looking for symptoms and signs such as lymphadenopathy, hepatosplenomegaly, as well as the specific cutaneous lupus manifestations, such as a malar rash. And very often, we find that some children may just have a bit of photosensitivity, which of course is really important to note new onset when considering, for example, a child who has presented with recurrent fevers or epyrexia of unknown origin. As part of the general examination, it's really important to check the blood pressure manually with the Doppler to exclude evidence of hypertension in your potential patients with lupus. And what investigations would you perform to confirm the diagnosis if you were suspicious of SLE? It's really important to have a broad range of blood tests to check in these patients. For the immunological-based and hematological-based tests, considering lupus as a diagnosis, then as well as doing a coagulation screen, it would be important to do a lupus anticoagulant and an anticardiolipin antibody, specifically looking for complement C3, C4, looking for a positive anti-nuclear antibody with the demonstration of a double-stranded DNA and extractable nuclear antigen, as well as consideration in your patient population to exclude other causes, so such as looking for an ANCA, an anti-glomerular basement membrane antibody, and looking for the general serum immunoglobulins. So very often you will get elevated IgG immunoglobulin G level in patients who've got an activated immune system as part of lupus. On the inflammatory components, it's really important to do a full blood count, to look to see if their Coombs test is positive, but also checking an erythrocyte sedimentation rate, a C-reactive protein, because very often in infection, you'll get elevated CRP and potentially an elevated ESR. But with lupus without infection, you will generally see an elevated ESR and a normal CRP. So really a very helpful test. But it would then be important really to consider the whole patient at this point as well. So the first thing obviously would be to check their renal function. And very often when people get a panel, they may, for example, include the bone profile with the calcium and phosphate, but actually may miss the liver function test because it's really important to see if there's any evidence of transaminitis, but also hypoalbuminemia, which may be due to significant proteinuria and or inflammation. We would also be looking for a blood film, potentially lactate dehydrogenase, a creatinine kinase, depending on the presentation. And if, for example, there were signs of pancreatitis, thinking about doing an amylase and lipase, as well as the full liver function tests. There may be indications to consider a chest x-ray, an ECG and an echocardiogram of potential cardiac involvement, but also consideration of a full abdominal and renal ultrasound, looking specifically at the kidneys, but also to exclude abdominal lymphadenopathy and exclude hepatosplenomegaly. Can we talk a bit more about the renal manifestations of lupus? How does lupus nephritis typically present? Children with systemic lupus erythematosus can present with lupus nephritis in a myriad of ways. 
So you may have a child who is a new presentation of SLE who's got lupus nephritis from the very start. Or you may have patients who are known to have lupus, but through their screening and reviews at time can present with renal involvement. So that variably would be proteinuria, microscopic and really frank macroscopic hematuria, hypertension and evidence of renal dysfunction. More specifically, patients may present with an overt nephrotic syndrome. So this would be where, if you imagine the kidneys are like a sieve, the sieve holes are getting bigger, protein molecules are leaking into the urinary space, and that significant proteinuria results in the blood levels of protein and albumin going down so that the albumin level in the blood would be less than 25 grams per litre. And that would be associated with the development of peripheral edema as the body tries to calibrate the oncotic pressure and very often is associated with hyperlipidemia. So patients with a nephritic syndrome may have proteinuria, but not this nephrotic range proteinuria and a microscopic hematuria together with, for example, acute kidney injury, where you've got patients who've got fluid and water retention and hypertension. But the nephrotic syndrome with the proteinuria, hypoalbuminemia, edema, and hyperlipidemia. Obviously, hypertension may be as a result of the salt and water. It could also be the result of treatment, for example, with corticosteroids. And the other way that patients can present is with an acute kidney injury or chronic kidney disease, or even acute kidney injury on top of chronic kidney disease, where there would be evidence of renal dysfunction and the secondary effects of the chronic kidney disease. And are there any other causes of glomerulonephritis that could mimic lupus nephritis? The most common reason to develop glomerulonephritis would be a post-infectious glomerulonephritis. And again, those would be patients may present acutely unwell, like patients with lupus. They may also have low complements, so specifically a low complement C3 in post-infectious glomerulonephritis compared to lupus nephritis with a low complement C3 and C4. Although I should state that up to about 25% of the population will be what we call C4 null, which is genetically based, meaning that their C4 levels will be no, but they actually have very little risk of developing other conditions. Obviously, in the whole glomerulonephritis arena, there can be other causes as well, such as a C3 glomerulopathy. And again, those patients may also have a low complement C3 with a C3 nephritic factor being present. But also there could be causes of vasculitis. So thinking about ANCA-associated vasculitis and a microscopic polyangiitis, or potentially a GPA or granulomatous with polyangiitis, what used to be called Wegener's granulomatosis. And in addition to the blood tests we've already talked about, what other investigations would you do to investigate the renal involvement in these patients? One of the first investigations that a nephrologist will always ask for, which always seems to be the most difficult investigation to get, but is a very simple one, is a urine dipstick. So we want, if possible, an early morning urine sample. So that's the first sample of the day, the first void, and to check with the urine dipstick if there's any evidence of proteinuria or hematuria. 
it would then be really important to send that to the laboratory for an early morning urine albumin or protein to creatinine ratio. And that will give us an understanding if there is renal involvement for the patient. And it's likely that your local laboratory will do just one, so either the albumin or the protein to creatinine ratio. When we're talking about lupus nephritis or glomerulonephritis with inflammation, we would expect there to be evidence of microscopic hematuria. So the urine dipstick should be positive. In addition to this, you very rarely will have evidence of macroscopic or frank hematuria. But within the nephritis, very often, it's actually more like a Coca-Cola color urine. In patients with proteinuria and hematuria, we would be considering doing a percutaneous renal biopsy for diagnostic purposes and for looking at potential treatments. The histopathology cannot be accurately predicted from either clinical or serological markers. After doing an initial light microscopy, what we generally see is a full house staining, so complement and immunoglobulin deposition within the glomeruli a full house staining in immunohistochemistry, and also in electron microscopy, you may see specific tubular reticular inclusions or deposits, and those may help us delineate which class of lupus nephritis the patients have and may help us, together with our rheumatologists and the multidisciplinary team, to consider which treatments would be best for each individual patient. Moving on to the management of SLE, how do we manage these children? Childhood onset lupus, as I said, has got variable clinical manifestations, an unpredictable natural history with significant morbidity or mortality. We know that the renal disease is a major determinant of the long-term outcome of SLE and does influence our management with immunosuppressive agents, and that the hematological and renal disease are more severe in patients with childhood onset compared to adult onset disease. So it's really important to make sure that we hit the disease activity hard at the time of presentation. We try to have evidence-based practice by using some of the recommendations which have come down over the years from consensus guidelines, which I've been involved in. There's the KDICO clinical practice guidelines, which was updated in 2021. And we published a literary review of looking at all of the drugs that were used. We did an update in 2019, together with the SHARE initiative, uh, which I was involved in, which was a European evidence-based recommendation for the diagnosis and treatment of childhood onset lupus erythematosus and a separate one for lupus nephritis. Aims of treatment are tried to induce and maintain a remission to choose agents which will minimize toxicity and maximize effectiveness. And clinically, we aim to reduce renal flares, as we know that any renal flare could be associated with a worse prognosis. Our conventional therapies usually start with corticosteroids and thinking about intravenous methylprednisolone as pulses, up to 600 milligrams per meter squared per day, so a maximum of a gram. But really, over the years, because of the side effects of steroids, we now give much reduced doses and normally I would have a maximum of 30 milligrams once daily for children presenting, but obviously it would depend on how significant the multi-system disease is. But we know that some patients have difficult disease, which may be very severe, that they don't respond to treatment, or they may be patients 
who are non-adherent and don't take their medications. There are some kids who don't even come to clinic. So it's really important to consider what treatment options may be available for them, including intravenous agents that we now think about. To try and get children off corticosteroids, historically, we used to give a lot of intravenous cyclophosphamide and potentially azathioprine. Our mainstay of treatment is now mycophenlamophytol, usually in conjunction with intravenous rituximab. It's important to keep on evaluating patients by looking at their response, going back and checking. One of the things we've learned through our collaboration internationally is to consider what we call treat-to-target strategy. So instead of having a conventional approach of waiting for flares of disease, is to try and minimize any degree of activity or flare of lupus activity very early on to try and reduce the overall damage to patients' multi-system organs with time. So, for example, if there's still evidence of ongoing inflammation in the kidney, if there's still significant proteinuria as part of the lupus nephritis, which may be due to active disease or chronic damage, then for some patients, maybe we want to go back and do a biopsy and think about, is it worth augmenting treatment? It's really important to consider swapping induction therapy so, for example, considering the higher dose of MMF, for example, considering the addition of a calcineurin inhibitor, tacrolimus, especially if there's evidence of membranous nephropathy, other options for those with severe non-responding disease may include immunoglobulin, newer agents such as belumumab, which has now been licensed, infliximab, plasma exchange, and actually very rarely now, stem cell transplantation. We would consider giving hydroxychloroquine for our patients because that's good for their energy levels, it's good for the cardiovascular morbidity, and it's good for the long-term outcome. And in addition to the hydroxychloroquine, we want to treat the hypertension, the hyperlipidemia, the proteinuria, using angiotensin receptor blockers or ACE inhibitors. If there's evidence of antiphospholipid or anticardiolipin antibodies, we would consider aspirin and anticoagulating, especially if they're nephrotic. Lastly, I'd like to say that we're understanding a lot more about the immune system and its activation within patients with lupus, which has really resulted in more targeted therapies and a lot more clinical trials are beginning to start in this age group. And so looking at adolescents as well as adults. And I think that there are some exciting drugs on the horizon, which we will need to consider in the future. At the moment, with current therapy, what is the prognosis for this condition? In the area before treatment became available, the prognosis of patients with lupus was very poor, with very few patients with severe lupus nephritis surviving more than two years without immunosuppressive therapy. Prognosis has improved with using additional immunosuppressive agents. And it's dramatically improved in recent decades in a major way, with most children able to look forward to long lives without debilitating symptoms. So I think that's a really important message to get across. And I think part of the outcomes that we are considering in 2022 and moving forward are going to be improved because I think as an international community, when we're thinking about how do we manage these patients, we're beginning to say that subclinical disease activity, 
is something that we really want to target. So historically, patients may have had more proteinuria, which had been ongoing, which potentially could damage the kidneys, whether they're due to active inflammation or chronic damage. But using more angiotensin receptor blockers or ACE inhibitors to minimize the proteinuria and prevent the progression of chronic kidney disease is very important. What percentage of children do you go on to require renal replacement therapy or a renal transplant? So if we look at our cohort of patients over the last 25 years, I can only think of one patient who ended up getting peritoneal dialysis. I also lead the kidney transplant program here at Great Ormond Street, and it's actually very rare for us to undertake kidney replacement therapy because patients are in stage five chronic kidney disease. But part of that, we shouldn't rest on our laurels because the story really is that many of these patients present as adolescents. So we don't see the fact that they're in their early 20s requiring dialysis and transplantation. And we do know that is likelihood, especially for non-adherent adolescents. And that is why I do favour more intravenous medications for those. And I think there are a core of patients that I've given six monthly intravenous rituximab infusions because of the data that we've had from patients receiving this B-cell depletion therapy. And it means that you know that they're getting the treatment. We do know that in a long-term follow-up study that roughly 6% of children historically died and about 9% of children develop end-stage kidney disease over between 10 and 20 years. If you look at those longer-term studies, I think we can say that a 97% patient survival and a 92% renal survival is a good outcome. But I do think that we can do better and hopefully with newer drugs, we will improve the outcome with time. So to finish, just our standard quickfire questions that we ask to everybody on this podcast. Firstly, are there any classic exam questions that tend to pop up about this topic? The typical exam question that comes up is, as I've mentioned, is the full house staining in the histopathology and when you do an immunohistochemistry and a percutaneous renal biopsy. And I think chronic diseases is one area which is really quite well focused by the college and other institutions, looking at how we work and collaborate within pediatric subspecialty teams with primary, secondary and tertiary care, as well as adult colleagues, as well as transition of care. Secondly, are there any useful resources that you would recommend to listeners who might want to find out more? Yes, so I would definitely recommend the European evidence-based recommendations for diagnosis and treatment of childhood onset systemic lupus erythematosus and lupus nephritis, which was published by the SHARE initiative. I think there's a good evidence base as well from the Joint European League Against Rheumatism and European Renal Association, so the European Dialysis and Transplant Association, which is the ULAR and ERE EDTA recommendations for the management of adult and pediatric lupus nephritis, which was published initially in 2012, and then we did an update in 2019. And finally, what are your three takeaway learning points from today? So I would say that the important thing to think about with children 
who have systemic lupus erythematosus and lupus nephritis is having a view of using combination therapies in the future with earlier use of biologic agents, as we know that they tend to be safe in more longer-term studies that we have now. I think we need to think about trying to change the world by having more children involved in clinical trials of investigational medicinal products, so to optimise the trial design. And it's very easy to include 12 to 18-year-olds, especially in studies which are mainly primarily based for adults at the start, if the FDA and the EMEA are happy. And that's one thing I'm really passionate about and have been trying to campaign. And the third thing is once we have these trials, is to make sure that we recruit children to lupus nephritis studies, because without recruiting them for these studies in the future, we're not going to learn what's the best treatment. And I think we should really move to a model akin to oncologists, where we think about every trial almost being in a study, because actually we need to gather more data in our international collaborations and improve the longer term outcome for children and young people with SLE and lupus nephritis. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today, Professor Marks. Thank you very much for inviting me and I look forward to hearing from other people if they wish to contact me in the future. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRC-PCH. If you want to get in touch, you can do so via social media. You can find Gosh Learning Academy on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. If you would like to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.